All right, well, hey, this morning we are going to, uh, we're going to be, as I just mentioned, uh, hitting three of the, uh, really the leading ladies around Jesus' ministry. And we're going to be taking a look at um, the little bit that we know about him. I mean, there's not a ton that we know about him, but his grace in their lives. And as we are getting to the tail end of this uh, series, as we've been thinking about and trying to shine the spotlight on and, and just marvel at the grace of God poured out in Christ Jesus. One of the things that we've wanted to try to highlight is that God uses all people from all different walks of life with all sorts of different personalities and gifts and skills and passions and desires, and He takes them and He uses them for His glory. And what actually is probably the most common thread amongst all of the disciples, except for Judas Iscariot, is that they were willing to follow. And their willingness to follow was just tremendous in their response to God's gracious initiation in their lives. And so Jesus comes to the brothers while they're fishing and he just says, follow me. He comes to Matthew at the tax booth, and he says, follow me. And that becomes this consistent refrain and what really characterizes these disciples. It's not that they're all a certain personality type. It's not that they all have a certain gift mix. It's not that they all look the same. In fact, they couldn't be much more different. But what is the same and what is true is their willingness and their desire to follow. And that becomes this hallmark of a characteristic. And they don't follow perfectly by any stretch of the imagination. Even after Jesus ascends, after the Holy Spirit comes, after they kind of figure out these things because the Holy Spirit now reminds them of everything that Jesus taught them while he was with them. And they begin connecting the puzzle pieces in ways that they had never connected it before. They're still not perfect men and women. And it's glorious that God is not given us the example of perfect people to follow. He's given us the example of real people to follow. And if you're like me, you're less than perfect as well. But hopefully what is true of us is that we're willing to follow. And that our life isn't characterized by a perfection, which if we're honest, if we look perfect on the outside, it's only feigned perfection. It's not real perfection. So our lives aren't characterized by a feigned perfection, but a direction and a desire for a direction, and that would be to follow God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, to love Him in that way, to see Him and seek Him as our greatest treasure, to rest in His completed work for us on the cross, and to exalt the name of Jesus as the name above every other name. So that's what we're trying to stitch together in highlighting these individuals that we've been looking at over the last 10, 11, 12 weeks. And so this morning we're going to shine the spotlight now on three different Marys and uh, just consider what Jesus did in the lives of these women and, and really how radical it was too. So I think for us to understand um, the, the radical nature of what Jesus did with these women and other women, um, we've, we've got to also understand a little bit of what just women were thought about in the first century. Um, and it's not entirely pleasant. Uh, so let's pray before we go any further. And we'll just start there. We'll consider some of those facts about first century and the women in particular in the first century. 
and, and then just try to shine the spotlight on, on God's grace poured out in Christ Jesus. So join me. Let's pray. God in heaven, we want to just come before you now, Lord, and ask that, that you, would, you would come and you would shine this spotlight on your grace, that we would, we would marvel at, at who you are and your love for us and how that has been demonstrated while we were still sinners. Christ died for us. And at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. God, you had a plan, and, and it is amazing to see how your plan has been unfolded. And God, we sit here this morning asking that you would cause us to marvel at more of your grace, that you would show us more of who you are. God, we want to, we want to be more like you. We want to have the direction of our life that much more focused and pointed towards following well. And so God, we ask that you'd come here in this place right now and teach us and work in us. And we pray this in the good name of Jesus. Amen. Well, in the first century, it's probably pretty easy to say that women's rights was a unheard of or an unheard of concept. And, and really, there was an incredible um, degradation of women's rights that took place from uh, the Old Testament pious Jew. If you look at the Old Testament law, there was actually laws affirming the rights of women. There was protections provided for them. Uh, but, but what happened was in that 400-year period of silence between Malachi and Matthew, while the collective Jewish world was waiting and Alexander the Great was trying to make everybody Greek, and he was trying to Hellenize the entire known world at the time, that the idea of women's rights began sharply declining. And so what happens when you get to the first century, there's just four different ways that I just kind of want to highlight real briefly the idea of or the understanding of women's rights in the first century. So the first would be legally. And, and this would be expressed in, in the sense of, can women testify in court? If there, was a, if there was an issue and the only witnesses were women, what would take place? Well, uh, women were not allowed to testify in court. In effect, this categorized them as Gentiles, which to a Jewish person would have been the very worst thing you could have possibly been. Uh, minors, people that can't speak or couldn't hear gamblers, mentally ill people, and pigeon racers. Now, I know nothing about pigeon racing, although it sounds like a dubious affair, all right? So I'm not sure what that is or why you would do it or how it even works, but women were thought less of than pigeon racers and were not allowed to testify in court. Let's think economically or in, or in a commerce Way I ran in last night, I ran into uh, Katie Cox and Adelaide Cox in the store at Martin's, and they were buying groceries for their family. Well, that wouldn't have happened if we were in the first century. Only women in dire economic straits could engage in commerce or be seen outside their homes, and only then accompanied by another woman, lest they be confused as a prostitute. 
Women were not allowed to go out. Now, some of you are thinking, that's great. Let the men do all the shopping. We're good with that, all right? Okay, Uh, but it was not for those reasons that this was understood. They were not allowed to be outside the home. In regards to education, rabbis, of which Jesus was considered a rabbi, so we're now trying to shine the spotlight on how radical he was. They thought he was a rabbi, understood him to be a teacher, And he was radical, though, because he did things incredibly drastically different than the other rabbis of the day. So all of the other rabbis would have believed it was foolishness to teach women how to read or even understand the scriptures. It's just a waste of time to teach women how to read. In regards to worship, women could only go so far in the temple. There was actually a court of women. They weren't allowed to go any further. They weren't even allowed to participate in public prayer at the temple. So, I mean, in those four aspects alone, legally, economically, educationally, and in regards to worship, and the, the idea of women's rights was just a foreign concept. I mean, they had none. They had none. One quote perhaps best sums this up. They are swathed like a mourner, which is referring to their face and hair coverings. They are isolated from people and shut up into prison, which was considered their own homes. That was the cultural context that women in the first century would have been in. And so Jesus comes on the scene, and he, in, in really every aspect of his life, is a radical and we just were thinking in our CE class about John 8 and the radical nature of Jesus' words as, as John records into that chapter, in that chapter. But let's just consider now, just kind of walk through a list of, of, of how Jesus affirmed women and how he radically was completely different than the cultural understanding of the day. And I'm just going to give you the reference. We're not going to look up the passages. Time is not going to permit us to dig into all of those. So I'm going to give you the point and the passage, and you can write them down in your notes. Uh, but Jesus protected women. Mark 10, 4 to 9. The question there is, can a man divorce his wife for any reason? And Jesus responds and says, you guys have it all wrong. What Moses wrote in Deuteronomy 21 was a protection for women who were being just wantonly cast aside by their evil husbands. And so Moses provided for them a protection in the law. But you guys are completely missing the point. And it's a husband loving and caring and protecting his wife till death because God has made them one. He protects women. And in that same passage, he actually elevates the role of women in the society by indicating that she was even capable of initiating divorce. Jesus' words go as far to say, and if she divorces her husband and marries another, she is considered an adulteress. That was a foreign concept that a woman would even have the ability to initiate divorce. And Jesus elevates the role of women and protects Women. Now, in that passage, he's not advocating for divorce. He's meeting them where they are and answering their question and telling them, you guys have this all wrong. Because the prevailing idea of the day was that if the woman burnt the dinner, she could be cast aside and a divorce was permitted. 
And that was a leading school of thought. And we actually see Matthew's record of this same incident shining some light more specifically in that. So Mark 10, 4, really to 12. You have Jesus protecting women, elevating the status and role of women. But then in John 4, you have Jesus seeking out a Samaritan woman. This woman who's at the well. This woman who had a... Had a uh, had a reputation that was not flattering. You're right. The man you're living with is not your husband, and you've had five others. This is a woman that Jesus specifically sought out. And we're thinking about how radical he was as a teacher. He protected the woman caught in adultery in John 8. He healed the woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years in Mark 5, 21 to 34. He had compassion on the widow who had just lost her son in Luke 7, 11 to 17. Jesus forgave a, quote, sinful woman in a Pharisee's house when the Pharisee only wanted to condemn her, Luke 7, 36 to 50. Pharisees, the woman comes to anoint Jesus' feet, and the Pharisee says, hey, do you know what kind of reputation she has? Pharisee wanted her booted out of his house. He wanted her condemned for her actions, and Jesus demonstrates and shows her grace and mercy. Jesus was followed by and provided for by many women as they traveled together. And as he proclaimed the kingdom of God and brought good news, Luke 8, verses 1 to 3. One of the ladies that we'll look at this morning specifically was one of those who traveled with him. And so, contrasting that with the idea that women weren't allowed to even leave the house, here you have Jesus welcoming women with him, in him, around him, as part of his ministry. Jesus affirms Mary. Lazarus' sister, for sitting at his feet in learning. Luke 10, 38-42. Jesus celebrates a poor widow for her two small copper coins, which meant that he was in the court of the women to do so, not in the court of men. Because there's only one place the women would have been allowed to go, the court of the women. And that's where Jesus was when he watched her place her two small copper coins in the treasury, and he celebrates her for that. Jesus comforts Martha and weeps with Mary after Lazarus dies, John eleven seventeen to 37. Jesus affirms Mary for anointing him for his burial, Mark 14, 3. Women are prominently recorded at Jesus' crucifixion. So you have Matthew 27, 55 to 56, Mark 15, 40, Luke 23, 48 to 49, and John 19, 25 to 27. All four gospel accounts record and give the names of the leading women that were there. Contrasting that with this idea that women's, the word of a woman was not justifiable in court, we begin to again see the radical nature and affirmation that Jesus gives to women. Women go to anoint Jesus' body or put perfume and spices on Jesus' body after his death. 
So again, we have all four Gospels recording that. Luke chapter 24, John chapter 20, Matthew 16, and Matthew 28 in regards to the, what is happening right before his resurrection. Jesus first appeared to women after his resurrection and sent them to the apostles who didn't believe him. But Jesus chose these women to go be the first heralders of the good news that he rose from the grave and the tomb was empty. Women were in the upper room after the ascension of Jesus and they were waiting for the Holy Spirit to descend on the apostles. It wasn't just the 12 or the 11 and then Matthias who got added to that number to round it back out. It was 120 of which consisted women. So when the Holy Spirit came in Acts 2, he came and indwelt men and women equally. And that's what Peter stands up and says in his sermon of Acts 2. You guys, I'm going to quote from Joel here. You're kind of wondering what's going on? Here it is. Joel prophesied about it. And so women were filled with the Holy Spirit. They spoke in tongues to the crowd gathered at Pentecost. Peter explains to Jewish pilgrims in Jerusalem that what they're seeing is the fulfillment of Joel's prophecy and that the gospel would break down gender, age, and socioeconomic barriers. And he specifically references male and female, young and old, slave and free. You can't really have much broader of an explanation of who or where people would fit into categories than those three aspects. Holy Spirit's for all. In Romans 16.1, Paul commends Phoebe as a deaconess. And he writes and says, I commend Phoebe, a deaconess. Now some of your translations are going to say servant, and that's what a deacon is. But the word specifically used there is the word that we would get the word deacon from. So there's an elevating even there in the rippling, in transferring, transpiring after Christ arose. So we, we, I, I wanted to put the spotlight there for a minute before we get onto these women, because I just want to highlight the fact that, that really any assertion that the Bible allows for the denigrating of women is completely false. Women are not second-class citizens, spiritual or otherwise, to men. Now, God has given and placed complementary distinction between men and women, and He's given them different roles, but let's think back to where we were a few weeks ago. Role does not determine value. Role has nothing to do with value. So there's complementary roles. Adam was given a job to work and keep, but he wasn't able to do it by himself. There needed to be a helper fit for him to provide what he was lacking. So there was complementary roles given, but those roles never determine the value that Adam or Eve had. Let's just kind of put it in today's example, because I think sometimes we get confused in this way, and these are some of the examples I gave as we were walking through the, the One Flesh sermon series about a year and a half ago, I believe, that oftentimes our society says, you know, things like changing the oil is a man's job. I, at the, I don't want to sound blasphemous here, but I do want to sound firm. I don't think God cares who changes the oil in your car. 
He does in a sense because he cares about everything, and I think he cares about the details of our life, but, but I, I don't think he cares about that. See, I, like the idea or the command that Adam was given to work and to keep was, was to make sure that there's a plan for the oil to get changed, but if, the, but if Adam doesn't know the difference between a screwdriver and an oil filter, he probably shouldn't be touching the oil. And if she does, then, then game on, like, Get under there and do it. And, you know, I think we could say the same thing about finances. You know, well, the man's got to keep the checkbook. Well, if the man can't add, he shouldn't keep the checkbook. Complementary roles would see that, you know, maybe God gave the man who can't add a wife who can. And the idea is not that he's got to own the checkbook. It's that he's, given, he's been given the responsibility to guard and protect, keep and work. So we got to make sure the checkbook's being kept. We got to make sure our finances are in the right place, that we're aiming in the right direction, that we're honoring the Lord with our finances and our, and our time and our talents and our treasure. But if the guy can't add, he shouldn't be balancing the checkbook. And maybe God's given him a wife to fill in those gaps. And so I think there's ways that like socially we, 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 we see that and we go, oh, those are man's roles. And, nah, I don't, no, I don't think they Oh, I'll tell you the one that, that I kind of bristle with, and it, it, it is just, it, it's just, we'll just call it, it it's kind of sinful in my own heart. When I see a guy riding in the passenger seat with his wife driving, I just go, oh, like, I don't know why, it's just, it's just my reaction, and I always have to catch myself and go, no, that it is, God doesn't care what seat the, the man sits in, you care, but he probably doesn't, and that's not the idea here, all right? So it's just, those are the ways that this kind of gets fleshed out in my own heart and soul when I see those things. I got to remind myself, like, that's not the point of working and keeping. The idea there would be, all right, are we, are we getting there safely? Are we, you know, it, so God affirms women throughout his scripture, throughout his word. And any assertion that the Bible gives, any type of permission for the denigrating of women is just completely, completely false. And if we just think real briefly on even the idea of submission, there's, there's three different places, three different relationships that are supposed to be characterized by submission. One is all people to a plurality of elders. You're to submit to your leaders as those who have to give an account for your soul. So we have a plurality of elders of our church. We've got eight of us. And the Bible would say that our church, all of us individually, are called to submit to that group. Now, every one of us as elders on that group is also called to submit to the group. So it's not like you become an elder and get a pass for submitting to the plurality of elders. No, you're now, in our case, one voice among eight, but you are called to submit just as anybody who wasn't in the room is also called to submit. Secondly, Paul tells us in Ephesians 5 that we're to submit to all people everywhere. That there should be this mutual submission that takes place amongst believers. And then right on the backside of that verse, a verse later, he says, wives, submit to your own husbands. That's not women, submit to men. It's wives, submit to your own 
husbands. Those are the three relationships where the word submission comes in the place. Everybody, regardless of gender, submitting to a plurality of elders that have been made elders by the Holy Spirit and confirmed by a congregation, all believers everywhere to one another. So I'm supposed to consider you more important than myself, Philippians 2, verses 3 and 4. And then there's a relationship of submission that takes place and is characterized in the home. So the Bible, it, it, the Bible affirms women. Jesus' ministry affirms women. And we need to be people who do the same thing as followers, following well. And so the three women we're going to just shine the spotlight on this morning are Mary Magdalene, Mary the sister of Martha and Lazarus, and Mary the mother of Jesus. We know most about Mary the mother of Jesus. We know a little bit about the other two Marys, and so we'll just trace through those two first and end with Mary the mother of of Jesus. Let's begin with Mary Magdalene. She was presumably, possibly an outcast in society. We know that she was demonically possessed and had been possessed by at least seven different demons. Mark chapter 16 and Luke chapter 8 both record Mary's presence in the life and ministry of Jesus and then include the woman he cast out seven demons from. Now, typically, demon-possessed people were not in the throngs of the higher echelons of society. You just think back to the demon-possessed man that was in the wilderness hanging out in a cemetery, naked and bound with chains, and those are some details we're given about that guy. We're not given those details about Mary Magdalene, but I highly doubt we would find a demon-possessed woman not on the fringe or the outskirts of society. But Jesus heals her. He comes and he meets with her where she is, and he sets her free. She then follows him, and we see her recorded specifically as following him, providing for him and the apostles and their practical needs. And that's the first three verses of Luke chapter 8. Mary Magdalene is actually called the first evangelist because she is the one that Jesus spoke to first, as recorded in all four gospel accounts. And Jesus commands her to go and tell the others. And here you have this woman who would have probably been the outcast of society. We have no details about her actions. We have a lot of details about the, the man possessed with demons' actions. We got none with hers except that she was bound, enslaved, satanically oppressed. And Jesus sets her free, transforms her life. And this woman who potentially society just tried to stay away from with as long of a stick as possible is brought near. And then she's commanded to go and tell first. This town outcast was healed by Jesus and she was given a purpose. And his grace transformed everything 
about her life as she followed him. And we're not told anything more. We don't know what she did after that. We know the disciples didn't believe her. We know she came and she said, hey, he's gone. And they doubted. That's why Thomas getting a bad rap for being doubting Thomas is a bit unfair because all of them doubted. And then Peter and John hop up. And John actually records for us that we went and ran to see for ourselves because we didn't understand this whole thing about the resurrection yet. And Jesus chooses this woman, possibly who had been the town outcast, to come and be the first evangelist, the first heralder of the good news that the tomb was empty. Mary, the sister of Martha, and Lazarus, we get a few different scenes that take place in her life. She was presumably or probably part of a wealthy family and just trying to tie together some, some threads along the way to make that conclusion. They had a tomb to bury Lazarus in. That speaks to wealth. And then she anoints Jesus' feet with expensive nard worth about an entire year's salary. Well, to have that type of wealth sitting around in the form of cologne or perfume, and then to have that be the only logical thing she would do in that moment is to break it and pour it over his feet and wash his feet with her hair, that's speaking to an incredible, incredible transformation of a woman from a family of high status There's a couple different times that Mary and Martha and Lazarus are are throwing parties. One of them is when Mary is commended for sitting at Jesus' feet in Luke 10, 38. Jesus loved Mary and Martha. When Lazarus died, as John records in John chapter 11, we're told it's Jesus who wept with Mary. This wealthy woman from a good family had been so transformed by his grace, so captured by who he was, that what she concluded was that material wealth wasn't to be sought over and above Jesus. And here it is, the perhaps most costly, precious thing in their home gets poured out. Jesus loved and used both of these women in tremendous ways. They both loved and followed him. And what we see is that it didn't matter where they came from. Mary Magdalene, perhaps the outcast of society, certainly was demon-possessed. Mary, the the sister of Lazarus, a wealthy lady, You need to talk about two opposite polar sides of society right here. And both of these women become characterized by his grace. It didn't matter where they came from. It didn't matter what their pasts were, how how, how glorious or how sinful. What mattered was their love for Jesus and response to his love towards them. Lastly, then, Mary, the mother of Jesus. We're told in Luke 1 that she was favored by God the Father and would conceive and give birth to God the Son by God the Holy Spirit. Luke records these details for us in 
chapter 1, verses 26 to 35. If you've got your Bibles, turn there. just want to look briefly at a couple of the details there regarding this woman. Gabriel comes and foretells. Says, hey, you're going to give birth. Verse 32, he will be great, called the Son of the Most High. The Lord will give him the throne of his father David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. Mary, everything you and your people have been waiting for for 400 years is going to be fulfilled in what I am telling you. And Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I am a virgin? It's really interesting. If you compare Mary's question to um, Zechariah's question, they're very similar. Zechariah is told by Gabriel, your wife's going to give birth. And he says, how shall I know this? But there's a few things that are different. I think Zechariah is asking Gabriel to confirm the truthfulness of his words. I think Mary's just kind of curious about the logistics. How's this going to happen since I'm a virgin? And the angel responded to her, verse 35, The Holy Spirit's going to come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has conceived a son and is in the sixth month Mary responds in verse 38, Behold, I am a servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. We're told that she was highly favored. Highly favored does not mean, though, sinless. Highly favored is a way to say a recipient of God's grace. As Jesus got older and his ministry took different shapes and forms and has began to travel and preach and teach and heal. Mark in chapter 3 verse 21 and then later in chapter 3 verse 31 records for us that Mary and Jesus' siblings thought he was out of his mind. And they tried to stop him. And we're not sure kind of how that all transpired between, you know, John 2 and she's at the party and she wants Jesus to change water into wine. And then later in his ministry, she now isn't quite sure what's going on. Why isn't this guy eating? Why is he talking all the time? And why is he healing a bunch of people? Like we're way far away from that party in Cana and she tries to stop him. And Jesus' attention is grabbed as he's preaching and teaching at one point and and he said, hey, your mother and brothers are here. And he responds to say, no, my mother and brothers are those who follow. Mary was favored. She wasn't sinless. The Bible records that for us. And I think there's some importance to that. Because here you have somebody who's at the end of her life characterized by following, not sinless perfection. Well, she didn't remain a virgin either. Jesus had brothers and sisters. Mark, or Matthew, 13, 55, and 56 were actually given the names of Jesus' brothers. James, Joseph, they might have called him Junior, we don't know. Simon, Judas, not Judas Iscariot, and not 
Judas Thaddeus, but Jesus had a brother named Judas. It was a common name. But we're also told that in that moment, his sisters came. And Matthew used the plural form of the word sisters, indicating there was at least two. Could have been more, at least two. Mary wasn't sinless. She didn't remain a virgin. All things indicate and point towards her and Joseph had probably a pretty healthy marriage relationship that yields children as God designed for it to do. But Mary was deeply loved by Jesus. And she recognized who he was. And there's this scene at the cross when Jesus is hanging there and he says to the Apostle John, Son, behold your mother. Woman, behold your son. You see in that moment, uh, amongst many other moments, Jesus' full humanity on display right alongside his deity on the cross. He is paying for and atoning for the sins of those who would trust and believe in his name. And yet he's also concerned about who's going to care for his mother. And so this peasant woman from a small town, shrouded in scandal, is honored for her faithfulness. She receives his grace. She receives his favor. She becomes vitally used by God in his mission. But we don't know what happened after that. There's no record of what she did or where she went. We know she was in the upper room when the Holy Spirit came. But after Acts 2, there's no mention of her again. And so what you have is three different Marys from three vastly different backgrounds, three different stories of God's grace, and one amazing Savior. We want to marvel at that. Marvel at God's grace and mercy in the lives of all kinds of people. Sons and daughters, young and old, slaves and free. Because it doesn't matter. Let's pray. God in heaven, pray that you might help us to see more of you. Marvel more at your grace and your mercy. That even in thinking through these three women from three different backgrounds with three different stories and, and lives you, you used in a mighty way and you, you magnified and you poured out your grace on them. And God, we, we pray that you would cause us to marvel even more at your grace. That you would allow us to see Jesus as beautiful and gracious and your grace and your mercy and your love poured out through him on us as the amazing grace that it is. And so God, we pray that you would help us see. We pray that you would open our eyes that we might see. And we pray this in Jesus' good name. Amen.